because I look so painfully like my mother. I enrage him just by existing. But when I wasn't around, he wasn't aware that I wasn't even there. That's the kind of relationship that we had as father and son. Welcome to the Brother Be Well podcast. I'm Leon Gidry from 97.5 KDEE, and this podcast for boys and men of color addresses the importance of mental health and wellness. Each week, we deliver inspirational stories and life hacks to reduce disparities, remove stigma, heal trauma, and to end prolonged suffering. Hi, welcome to Brother Be Well. My name is Michael P. Coleman. I'm director of content for the program. And I'd like to uh, introduce you to an amazing young man. He, to call him a survivor is a bit of an understatement. Patrick Ma is with us. He's an advisor to Brother Be Well. He's got lived experience. He's a physician assistant, and he's got an inspirational story that you've got to hear. It's a story of trauma, resilience, and recovery. Patrick, how's it going today? Hello, Michael. I'm doing well. How are you? Really good. Really good to see you. Looking good there, Patrick. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to great to have you here. Let's get into this story. There's so much to talk about. I was moved to tears literally reading your story. So let's get right into it. You grew up in Vietnam and you grew up with uh, your biological father who abused you physically. Talk about the scars that you still hold physical and otherwise from the abuse that you suffered from your father. Yeah. So um, for the viewer at home, I was born and raised in Vietnam. My mom and my dad left uh, divorce right when I was born, and my mom left to um, go to the U.S. by herself, leaving me behind with an abusive and alcoholic father. Um, and, you know, of course, I don't have any recollection when I was six months old, but from what my grandma told me, she said um, he started to slap me and pinch me when I was just about six months old. A lot of you at home now would pause and ponder, how would you hit a six-month-old baby? Um, that's just inhumane. It is. And, you know, there's just no justification for it. Um, you know, I still have scars from my dad. And, um, you know, in addition to those physical scars is the emotional trauma and a little bit of PTSD, too, if I may diagnose myself, mm-hmm. which I have a clinical background. so. I think it's it's right on the money. Wow, wow. The 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 to call them brutal again. I don't have the word to describe some of what you you, you went through at, at such a young age, Patrick. On one particular day, I want you to talk about you actually passed out. Your father beat you until you lost consciousness. You woke up the next day and you went to a friend's house. Talk about your life at your friend's house and what ultimately may have been a pretty low point in your life. Talk about that. Yeah, um, it's always tough um, to talk about that day. Um, And I remember it just like yesterday. I think, um, you know, it was my 13th birthday. You know, um, I officially become a teenager, I suppose. Um, My dad usually, you know, on average hit me about two to three times a week, whether it is to discipline me, as he called it, or sometimes just because he feels like hitting me. Um, I would never forget my 13th birthday because I consider that one of the lowest point in my life. Um, I, it was a weekday, and you know I was sleeping in bed, 
I didn't expect any present or cake or any celebrations for my birthday because it just doesn't take place in our household. It's not what my father do. Um, but, you know, I was sleeping in bed because I have school the next day. And I remember my dad came home. He was drunker than I ever remember him. And he started pulling me out of bed by my legs and just start hitting me. Um, the sad part is, as a 13 years old, I just stopped crying. Wow. Because I knew no matter how much I cried or you know how hard I begged, my dad would not stop until he finished. Um, so I was just sitting there in the fiddle position, um, the only way I knew how to protect myself and let my dad do his thing because I'm so used to being beating at to being beaten at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't anticipate that day was that after my dad was done beating me, um, he stripped me naked and made me stand in front of our house. Now, the street in Vietnam is very different than the street here in the U.S. The residential street here, you have one car, maybe two cars every five, ten minutes. Mm. In Vietnam, it is the equivalent of a highway. So you can imagine, busy highway, there was, you know, I was just a boy. I was a little boy, 13 years old, just went into puberty and, you know, painfully aware and embarrassed of my growing body. And there I was just standing in front of our home, um, naked, afraid, cold. It was a winter night and I have wounds on my body that was still dripping with blood. Wow. I have never felt so humiliated um, and so so much less than a human being than I ever have felt in my entire life even though with everything that my dad put me through. And, you know, if somebody was trying to come and help me, my dad would pull me back into the house and continue to hit me until I pass out. I, I don't remember what happened next. I just remember the next morning waking up and I was in so much pain, both physically and emotionally. And I have all these questions in my head. Why am I still here? What is my purpose in life? What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? And you can imagine as a 13 years old, I just could not come up with the answer. Um, and, you know, watching TV and shows and whatnot, and I, I thought the only way for me to get out is to, to take my own life. <laughs> so that was what I did. I attempted. I went to my friend's house and told her that, you know, oh, I have to, I can't remember, was it a him or her? Um, but I went into the bathroom, closed the door, and I slept my own rest. Uh, and I was just laying on the floor, and there was a pool of blood around me. Um, I felt a sense of relief because as the lights go out, um, for my eyes, it's just also a sense of freedom that my dad could no longer hit me. He could no longer hurt me. Uh, fortunately, for, very fortunate for me that um, my my friend's parents um, was went upstairs to look for something in the bathroom and the door was locked. So 
they bashed the door open and found me, rushed me to the hospital, and they, you know, pay for the entire medical bill. Because in Vietnam, if you have someone, you know, attempt suicide in your house, it's just bad, bad um, feng shui or bad juju, as they call it. Um, and they told me never to repeat the incident to anyone. Um, you know, so that was, I think that was the lowest point in my life. Wow. You, you thank God survived that. So many people don't. You, your, your, your friends, uh, parents took care of you, helped you to kind of begin a healing process. You wound up going back home and, uh, before your father could, could, uh, jump back into the next phase of abusing you, you took a baseball bat and used it in a way that was not intended by the manufacturer. The person, the company that made that bat didn't intend for someone to do with the bat what you did with it. Talk about that a little bit, Patrick. Yeah, um, I was actually very surprised with myself when I did that. So what happened was I went home um, and I was gone for days. Did my dad notice? No, he probably was too drunk. And I think because I looked so painfully um, like my mother, every time my dad sees me, he had this sense of rage in him. I enraged him just by existing. Um, but when I wasn't around, he wasn't aware that I wasn't even there. Mm. Um, that's a kind of relationship that we had um, as father and son. But when I went back home after my recovery at my friend's place, um, I remember walking in the door, was very afraid. Um, don't know. Okay, so how he's going to respond? I was gone for days. Would he be mad? And I remember walking to the door, and the first thing my dad do is just unbuckling his belt. And I knew what he was going to do. So you know, I th I think being having a near death experience really changed you. So you know, I as I mentioned, I was really surprised. Maybe subconsciously, there's something in me that want to strike back. So I did. I grabbed the closest thing to me, which was a baseball bat. I don't know how we have that in our household because I don't play baseball. Um, but it was a wooden bat. It was quite heavy because I was a scrawny kid. But I swung that bat with all my might um, at my dad's head, and he passed out. You know, I was surprised because I think I didn't think the hit was that hard but he probably was too drunk already. So it was an easy hit. Mm. And I make a split decision at that point. Do I want to stay here and continue taking this abuse? Or should I run for my life? I, I ran for my life. I, um, my father and his mother has an extreme relationship um, where he prohibited me from talking to my grandma. And from the age from zero to five, my grandma actually was the one raising me because my father was too drunk um, to even remember that he has a son, let alone taking care of an infant. Um, he, however, prohibited me uh, from ever entering my grandma's house when we were living together. But that day, after I hit him and, you know, make him pass out, um, I ran to my grandma's place and um, I asked my grandma, 
Grandma, can I please stay here? She said yes, and I never looked back. You never looked back, and, and you led me right into my next question. How, if you can describe it, how elated were you to finally be out of there initially and to be with your grandma? Can you, for the, for the listener and viewer, you're taking them through a pretty painful story. So talk about for a second how happy you must have felt to finally be out of there. Yeah, it's it's a great, um, I think I can remember. My, my memories when it comes to my childhood is rather fuzzy because mm. a lot of time, you know, I try to suppress those memories so I don't have to remember the pain associated with them. Um, I think I was with my grandma when I was between the age of 13 and 15, if I remember correctly. That was the best two years of my life. Mm. We were not rich by any means, you know. Um, Vietnam was and still is a third world country, um, and resources is scared and few and far in between. My grandma was selling um, meat, you know, like fresh pork meat at the market for money, and you know, try to make a living for herself. And you know, all suddenly she had this little kid with her who's hungry all the time because I was a growing teenager um, that she had to take care of. We were not rich. We did not have a lot, but I was never happier um, living with my grandma. Um, you know, she, she's someone who cares for me because she wants to, not because she has to. Um, and she also makes sure that all of her children who live with her, all of my aunts and uncle knew that I am somewhat of an important person in this household and that no one was to mess with me. Um, wow. I owe my life to, to that woman. Yeah. And, and many, many women after her, but I've just have very, I have, I've, I've been having good luck with older women who took pity on me and took me un, into their wings, under their wings. Well, I, I, I can feel that, that uh, when you described it as the happiest two years of your life at that point, I could feel that, Patrick. I, I am sorry if I got to walk you in through a, a period that, that had to have brought some sadness. Your grandmother, uh, who you love so much, died in a car accident when you were 15. According to your print story, um, you were left behind with relatives. Your grandmother had left a will that allowed for your provision, so she tried to take care of you. Even after she was gone, she set up a plan to have you taken care of. Your relatives disregarded those plans. And I've got to tell you, Patrick, one of the, one of the aspects of your story, when you described uh, your, your family eating a meal and not feeding you, and you found yourself eating from the sink, I, I cannot imagine... Um, being on either side of that equation, forcing a child to eat leftovers from the sink or being that child. So talk about that a little bit. How did you manage to move on past that? Talk about that, man. Yeah. So, you know, in Vietnam, a will doesn't exist. I think it's just a um, an honorary system where, you know, when my grandma passed, she didn't have the will, but everybody in the household knew how much she cared about me and, you know, the, the house that she left behind. Um, I'm, I was supposed to be allowed to live there and that, you know, 
my family was supposed to take care of me the way that many Asian households do. They, they take care of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to um, blame my uncles and aunts, even though I do um, blame them for not taking care of me. It's hard to blame them because we, my grandma has 11 kids. Mm. So about eight of them survive. If I remember correctly, there's a lot of them. So there's eight of them that survive um, through, you know, poverty and everything that Vietnam has to go through as a country. Um, and, you know, out of eight of them, I think five of them live in the same house or four of them live in the same house. We have a four bedroom house and each in Vietnam, the, the housing was great differently where, you know, as you can see in the background, this is my bedroom and there's no restroom in here. But in Vietnam, each room is equipped with a bathroom because you, the family that live in that unit is almost confined to that unit as a, a small small apartment, mm. um, if you may. And it's mm. the, the room there is actually smaller than the room that you see in the background here. Mm. Um, so there was four rooms in that house. Um, so there's four family that live in that house. And then there was me. So I didn't fit into anywhere because each household have a husband, a wife, and one, if not two, two children that live with them. So to ask them to take on additional person is a lot. Not only that they don't have the space, they don't have the resources either. Mm. So going back, it's, it's, it's hard for me to blame them, even though I do, I do as a child blame them and have so much resentment for them for not taking care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we we structure meals is that, you know, someone is responsible for making meals um, for the whole family, you know, that day or that week or however. And everybody is um, presumably have a portion of food that they are supposed to eat. Not It's not that they didn't give leave me anything to eat. It's that they didn't leave me enough to eat. As a growing teenagers, you, you know, everybody went through their teenagers and puberty at one point. You're hungry all the time. And when you don't have enough food to eat, it's, it's, it takes your focus away from your study, from your daily activities, and so on and so forth. Um, and I remember I, I, you know, that day I already had lunch and I came home after school for whatever reason that I could not remember. Um, and I was so hungry and I would just want to have a snack, if not another meal, because the previous meal was so small. Um, but there was nothing with my name on it. Mm. And of course, um, being painfully aware of my situation where nobody wants to take care of me, um, let alone giving me extra resources, I didn't dare to ask, like, can I eat something else in the refrigerator or on the stove? Um, and I remember just going to my, to the sink to wash my face. It was quite tired. It's a hot day in Vietnam. Uh, it's very humid there. And I remember um, it was, as I was washing my face, there's a plate or a bowl of food in the sink that has some water and soap in it already because, you know, they were doing dishes or whatnot. And I was so starving, if, if not to a point of being famished. Um, I just remember unconsciously picked up the food and put it in my mouth. 
And as I swallow it, I, I just remember this sense of shame that I have, because this is not something that a human being um, should be doing, let alone an educated individual. Because even though we were poor, my grandma put me through elementary school, middle school, and I was in high school at that point. I was a high schooler eating food right out of the sink that someone has left and let water and soap run through. I, that would have to be the second lowest point in my life. But, you know, it's just how many low points can a human being have? Well, that's a great, um, somewhat rhetorical question. You you would be a person that can answer that, Patrick. I, I don't know how many they could take. And, and I would agree with you. It, 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 it felt like a low point when I read the story. And, and so thank you for being willing to share share some of the details of that with the Brother Be Well audience. Thanks for listening to the Brother Be Well podcast. I'm Leon Guidry. Shout out to our sponsor, Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative. It takes a village, and we're doing our part to address and heal trauma while supporting parents and caregivers along the way. Thanks for stopping by. And remember, my brothers, be well. Be well.